love Psalm 119, and it is a privilege to be able to, to preach from it a little bit this morning. Last week, the whole sermon depended upon you and the congregation learning how to fly using an aircraft indicator. And maybe just to let you in to a little bit about how my mind works, this week I was thinking, what if some of you were on an airplane and you heard an announcement come over the speaker, please don't be alarmed, but if anybody knows how to fly this airplane, could you identify yourself to the flight flight attendant and move to the front? And uh, if, if that situation ever does happen to you, based upon what you uh, maybe learned from the sermon last week, I would say, give it a shot. What do you have to lose? <laughs> I would also say, if you successfully get that airplane on the ground, give all glory to God. If you are further questioned about that, I prefer to go by Bob and not Robert in any kind of uh, written media material. So. I'm the, I'm the kid that showed up at the baseball park with my glove and my jersey just in case they needed to pull somebody from the crowd to, uh, to, to jump in the game for them. So hopefully that won't happen. Uh, we're in the middle of a uh, sermon series, a two-part sermon series on the wonderful words of life. It's about the Word of God. And so last week we talked about the sufficiency of the Word. And this week... We're talking about, from God's word, where do we turn for counsel? And so that's the question. Where do you go for counsel? You might even ask yourself this question. Where am I going for counsel? And then I think from last week, from God's word, we learned, you know, where is is it best that we go for counsel? What guidance does God's holy word give us? And we know as we're thinking about this, there's the obvious uh, problem or the obvious issue. Am I going to reject Scripture's authority? The Bible has certain claims that it makes about itself that God has, has put into his holy word. Am I going to reject those claims about the Bible's authority and about the Bible's sufficiency to help me? Am I tempted to justify unbiblical counsel? Or extra-biblical counsel? And again, am I willing to affirm in word and in deed the authority and sufficiency of Scripture? Am I tempted to put limits on Scripture that Scripture doesn't put on itself? And I'm going to remind you of a few passages throughout this sermon uh, from last week, and here's one of them. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Seeing that his divine power, and we know through his word, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these things he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. God does not put limits on the power and on the authority and on the sufficiency of his word. But we're tempted to doubt that. This world is tempted to doubt it, and then we're tempted to doubt it, if not in our words, probably sometimes in our actions. And that's not a new thing. I'm going to give you two examples, and this one's from 65 years ago. This is what J.I. Packer wrote. We have to choose whether we will accept the biblical doctrine of Scripture as it stands or permit ourselves to refashion it according to our fancy. We have to choose whether to embrace the delusion that human creatures are competent to judge and find fault with the words of their creator or whether to recognize this idea for the blasphemy that it is and drop it. We have to decide whether to carry through our repentance on the intellectual level or whether we shall still cherish our sinful craving for a thought life free from the rule of God. We have to decide whether to say what we believe the Bible I'm sorry, we have to decide whether to say that we believe the Bible and mean it or say it and look for ways whereby we can say it without having to accept all the consequences. If the human mind is set up as a measure of and test of truth that will quickly substitute for man's incomprehensible creator, a comprehensible idol 
fashioned in man's own image. Man wants a God he can manage and feel comfortable with and will inevitably invent one if allowed. He will forget because he cannot understand the infinite gulf that separates the creator from his creatures and will picture to himself a God wholly involved in this world and wholly comprehensible in principle at any rate by the speculative intellect. Once people reverse the proper relationship between scripture and their own thinking and start judging biblical statements about God by their private ideas about God instead of vice versa, their knowledge of the creator is in imminent danger of perishing. So that's the same problem that we're encountering in our church, that we're tempted to in our own lives, in our own hearts, uh, was assaulting the church even 65 years ago. But it goes back further than that. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to take a look at the nature of the attack that Satan makes upon God's people, Adam and Eve, his creation in the Garden of Eden. And I think we're going to be able to see how this attack uh, has, has carried through history up until our day. Here's what Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 says. Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, listen to this, has God really said you hear that first attack? It's casting doubt upon what God has said. The word that God gave Adam and Eve, has God really said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God had said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And now here's the, the attack brought to completion. The serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. Satan, this world contradicts the word of God. That is the attack on our faith. That is the attack that Satan started in the garden, and that's the attack that he carries through to this day. So we have the sufficient word of God. And just a reminder from Psalm 19 last week. Psalm 19 talked about God's word, and it said God's word is several things. Here's a reminder of some of the things that God's word, God's word is. It's perfect. It's sure. It's pure. It's clean. And it's sweet. Psalm 19 also tells us some of the things that God's word does. And here's a reminder of those. It restores the soul. It makes us wise. It enlightens our eyes. It rejoices the heart. It warns us and protects us, and it keeps us from presumptuous sins. So where do you go for counsel? Do you go to that perfect, pure word that restores the soul or makes us wise, or do you go to the world? And we as God's people know we need to go to the word of God. The subject matter of counseling generally, is the subject matter of the Word of God. Here's the reminder from last week. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 through 17. You, however, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So any half-decent, even secular counseling framework or counseling theory has an idea of what is good, of what is right, maybe what is normal, essentially what is to be taught. It contains an idea of what is wrong, what is hurtful, what is unhelpful, what is abnormal, a form of rebuke. Counseling theories contain or imply what needs to change in order to achieve health and normalcy, and sometimes ways to get there. These theories contain correction. And counseling frameworks usually have some idea about how to maintain mental health and the things you need to do to stay healthy. 
they have an idea of training. So the subject matter of counseling theories is the subject matter of Scripture. It's the subject matter of the authoritative and the sufficient Word of God. And we're God's people. We're taught and trained by God's Word, aren't we? Do not neglect God's Word, church, especially when God's Word speaks directly to you on a specific subject. So this sermon examines the practical implications of the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. And we're going to look at an extended example in Psalm 119. And then, two, we're going to briefly survey God's teaching to us about counsel from Scripture. And then, three, we're going to survey God's warnings to us about unwise counsel and even false teaching that we can be exposed to. So, Psalm 119, one, good counsel in Scripture, and then warnings from Scripture. So let's bow our heads in prayer and ask the God of his word to help us understand it and help us apply it. Heavenly Father, you are the Lord, and you are a good God. You're a God of everlasting loving kindness, and, uh, and we are thankful that when we trusted in you, trusted in you alone, that you saved us, that you placed us in Christ, that you uh, have given us your holy word that teaches us to trust in Christ and that teaches us to continue trusting in Christ. So we pray for our time now that you would help us, help us understand your word, help us meditate on it, help us live it out, help us tell it to each other. And we do this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. So you can open your Bibles to Psalm 119, and as you're doing that, I just want to tell you the, probably the very first thing I tried to study on my own uh, was this study guide. This is as an adult, and it was a study guide on a book by a pastor uh, named Chuck Swindoll. So some of the older people here might remember that name. And uh, he wrote a book, Living Above the Level of Mediocrity. And there's an exercise in the front of that book that had me go through Psalm 119. And I just read this very long chapter of the Bible. And I wrote down the benefits of God's word. And it turned out to be a pretty long exercise. There's just benefits of God's word listed in every section of, of this psalm. And it made an impact on me. I've I fell in love with studying the Word. I fell in love with God's Word largely through studying Psalm 119. So I commend that to you. We're not going to read it all uh, today, uh, but if you're willing to take any homework away from a sermon on a Sunday morning, it would be read and meditate on Psalm 119. It will be well worth any effort that you put into that. Psalm, Psalm 119 is beautiful, and it appeals to my sense of order. It's long. And it's repetitive. There's 22 sections. Each section corresponds to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Each section has eight lines. And each line begins with the same letter. And each section is about God's word. And as you uh, look in Psalm 119, and I would just ask you, open your Bible to Psalm 119. Just pick one of those sections, or maybe two, and just glance at that as I talk. What do you think in this very long song or psalm or poem about God's word are the most repeated words in this psalm? And the ones that kind of stick out in my mind, I, he talks about God's precepts and God's laws and his commandments. And those things are repeated often. But by far and away, the most repeated words in this psalm are personal pronouns. It's I, me, my, to you, or thy, depending on the version of the Bible that you have. Psalm 119 is the most extensive I to you conversation in Scripture. It's a talking to someone, not talking about something. And Psalm 119 is real, and it's gritty. And when you're reading it, it's deeply personal, and it's uncomfortable often, oftentimes. My very first counseling professor, David Pallison, wrote, Psalm 119 is where I go to learn utter and utterly appropriate honesty. Here, I learn how to open my heart about what matters to the person I trust the most. 
I plainly affirm what I most deeply love. I'm candid about my deepest ongoing struggles. I express pure delight. I lay the sufferings and uncertainties I face on the table. I cry out in need and shout for joy. I say what I want, and I want what I say. I hear how to be forthright without any stain of self-pity. I learn how true honesty I learn how true honesty talks with God. It's fresh. It's personal. It's direct. It's never formulaic. Sometimes it's abstract, vague. I hear firsthand how truth and honesty meet and talk it over. The truth is never denatured, never rigid, never inhuman. The honesty never whines, never boasts, never rages, never gets defensive. I leave that conversation nourished. I find and experience the brightest and sweetest hope imaginable. I hear how to give full expression to what it means to be human in honest relationship with the person who made humanness in his image. This chapter, this psalm, is not so much about the Bible as it is what we honestly express when God's word gets into us. I mean, if you just had to summarize it, I think even the writer would summarize it. It's, Lord, you spoke. You said things. You gave me your word. You acted. I, I need you, Lord. Make me into what you say I should be. Do what you say you'll do. I love you. I'm committed to you. I desire to stay committed to you. Psalm 119 teaches us not only to get in touch with our feelings, maybe to use a more modern phrase, but it helps us interpret how we feel. Psalm 119 also gets us out of the monologue, monologue business. Do you ever have troubles in your quiet time? You wake up in the morning, you start to pray, and it just sounds like you're kind of talking to the air, and you're, you're sort of focused on yourself. What are you thinking about? What do you need? What do you feel? And you're just sort of saying the words, and it feels kind of cold and distant. You turn to Psalm 119, talking to God is not like that. If you want to enrich your quiet time, read Psalm 119. Pray through Psalm 119. I want to give you uh, just a, a few ways to look at someone, Psalm 119. And I'm going to be bouncing around several sections. But if you sort of park in your section, you can look for these same things. So uh, some major themes throughout this chapter. The Lord has arranged the conditions of the writer's existence. The Lord has arranged the conditions of our existence. Uh, even in verse 4, it says, You have ordained your precepts. God has done that. And he ordained them that we should keep them diligently. Or skip over to verse 84. How many are the days of your servant? We don't know. God does. When you will execute judgment on those, when will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The Lord has, has established his kingdom. He has created the world. He knows how it's supposed to run. He knows how it will end, and he'll work his way. And if you're parked in one section, you should be able to find some of these things too. Another thing you'll find in Psalm 119 is the Lord speaks wonders. I'm going to look at verse 21. It talks a little bit about what the Lord says. It says, you rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. Those, those people that seem to do wicked and evil, that, that look like they're successful, the Lord is rebuking those. They will be judged Verse 24 says, your testimonies are also my delight. We can delight in the word of the Lord. And then it says, they are my counselors. In this psalm, we'll see that the Lord destroys evil. Verse 119, you have removed all the wicked of the earth like dross, like when you're purifying metal, that the impurities that you just scrape off He's going to remove all the wicked of the earth like that. Or verse 126, when the Lord acts and says, it is time 
for the Lord to act, for they have broken your law. The Lord will uphold his word. If he has spoken it and he says it is true and it will come to pass, he will accomplish that. We also find in Psalm 119 that the Lord is merciful to me. Verse 24, again, your testimonies are, de- are my delight. They're my counselors. The Lord is merciful to give us his word. Verse 65, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. That's what Psalm 119 is about. So how do you react to it? This is God's word to you. It is God's word to us. It is our counselor. How do we react to his words? I will tell you how this psalmist reacted. Here's the words that you would, you'll see, even in the section that you're looking at. I keep. I keep your word. I keep your commandments. I seek. I seek after you, O Lord. I love. I love you. I love your law. I choose. I choose you. I choose to obey you, Lord. I remember when it's nighttime and I can't sleep. And I'm laying there awake. I remember you. I remember your words. I remember your promises. I do. I take action because I trust in you. I believe you. I rejoice in you. I rejoice in your word. I meditate on your word day and night. I cling to you and I cling to your word. I delight in it. And church, we can delight in the word of the Lord. I do not forget your word. Let me just read an example of of probably a lot of those things in Psalm 119, verse 41, and you can all turn there with me. Starting in verse 41, I'll just read that section through verse 48. It says, May your loving kindness also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. So I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. And do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I await your ordinances. So I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be ashamed. I shall delight in your commandments, which I love And I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. The Lord in his word teaches us how to respond to him. There's things that we see in Psalm 119. You can turn back to verse 9. One of those things is is that this writer is saying, I am facing a struggle. There is a hardship There is suffering. In all but three of these sections in Psalm 119, we see situational suffering. So if you are one who suffers, this psalm is for you. Verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? This young man is struggling keeping his way pure. So he, he turns to God's word. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. What does the writer find so difficult, so troubling, so painful, so threatening, so dangerous? There's a couple things. One is he looks inside himself. He sees his own sinfulness. God's word reveals that suffering that comes from ourself. Verse 5. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. His ways have have gone astray. He looks inside and he is ashamed at what he sees. Verse 6, then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. When he strays, he, he reads God's word or he hears God's word and he's ashamed, but he, he strives to keep God's statutes so he can remain upright. But do you, like this psalmist, see things inside you that are disturbing, that are if you're honest, that are evil. Go to God's word. He tells you how to to speak those to him. He gives us the forgiveness that we have in Christ. We also see terrible things coming at us from outside of us. 
And I know many of us have, have things that happen to us that we're seeking to follow the Lord and, and suffering happens. It can be a health diagnosis. It can be troubles in your family. It can be job situations. It can be relational conflict, things that come to us from outside of us. What do we do with those? We talk candidly to God about our suffering. And here's some of the things that the writer of Psalm 119 says, I need you to do something, O Lord. I need you to turn my eyes away from looking at vanity. Don't let iniquity reign over me. Make me walk in the paths of your commands. Be gracious to me, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me, revive me, make me understand, deliver me. If you are suffering, you can pray with the writer of Psalm 119 these same things. How else does he respond? How does God lead him to respond? You read things like, I am committed to you. I am yours. I am your servant. I promise to keep your words. I treasure your word in my heart. Your servant meditates on your statutes. I have chosen the faithful way. I do not turn aside from your law. I have restrained my feet from every evil way. And I hope. I hope for your salvation, O Lord. I believe you. I believe your word. I do what you say. I have not forgotten. Lord, I will never forget. This is how you pray to our Lord. So, a summary of Psalm 119 and what it's teaching us. It's, Lord, I'm not talking about my sin. I am talking to you, Lord. I'm afflicted, and I need you I'm committed to you. I delight in you. God teaches us how to honestly come at him in Psalm 119. He counsels us. In Psalm 119, he teaches us and he rebukes us and he corrects us and he trains us. So what does God's word say about counsel? About counsel from his word, about counsel of his believers. Where should we turn? Where do you turn for counsel? And so this is the second part of our sermon. What does God commend for counsel for his people? And I'll just remind you, John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. This is Jesus praying to God the Father about his disciples. Sanctify them in the truth because your word is truth. It is critical for the people of God to turn to the God of truth and turn to him in his word, which is the truth. So why is scripture sufficient? Why is it able and capable to do what it says it will do? You know, I reminded you of 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 14 through 17, and I just want to summarize again. It says that God's word is holy, it's sacred, it's set apart, it's able. It is able to do what it was designed to do. It's the Holy Spirit's tool for working in our minds and hearts and making us like Christ. It's inspired by God. It's breathed out by him. It's profitable. It's useful. It can thoroughly equip the man of God for every good work. The word of God is sufficient. And what does the word of God tell us about the wisdom that we seek? Where do you go for wisdom? Here's what James 1.5 says. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Are you the one person in this room who has ever lacked wisdom? Have you ever talked to me and thought, that is a guy who lacks wisdom? Sometimes. Maybe all the time. We do lack wisdom. We don't know everything. We can't foresee the future. I'm talking to you, and sometimes I am talking to you, and I want to love you, and I want to care for you, and I'm just missing the boat. I'm, I am not getting it. I would say that might happen the other way every once in a while, too. We don't have all wisdom, but we do, if we are in Christ, have God, and we have God's word, and he gives wisdom. He gives wisdom in his word, and when we read his word and we realize we're lacking some wisdom right now, we have access to God in his word and through Christ to ask him for more. And do we have to worry about whether he's going to give it to us or not? 
James 1, 5. Let him ask, and it will be given to him. God will keep his promises. He will give us the wisdom that we need. It might not be the wisdom that we think we need, but we will receive the wisdom that we need, and we can count on that because the God of truth says that that is so. How do we recognize that wisdom? James 3.17 says, But the wisdom from above is pure, is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, then reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. The wisdom that comes from God produces godly fruit. If we're receiving counsel and we're receiving wisdom and it doesn't produce this fruit, We need to be warned because wisdom from above is pure, just the way God said his word is pure. It's peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits. I, I mean, I just want to stop here and read Psalm 119, 25 through 32 again. It was part of uh, our scripture reading before we started, but it just gives you example after example of how to seek wisdom, how to seek counsel in God's word and be taught by it. It says, my soul cleaves to the dust. And I read that and I think, wow, there are times that my soul cleaves to the dust. I have been brought low. And I've been brought low not always because something unjust or unfair has happened to me. I've been brought low in my own pride, in my own failures. And the Lord, my soul was cleaved to the dust Revive me according to your word. And I, I'm just reading this, just knowing that there are many of us who can say, my soul cleaves to the dust, and we have to say, revive me according to your word, O Lord. I've told of my ways, and you've answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts. How does the Lord do that? How does he lead us in his word to, to be taught and to understand? Let's go on. So I will meditate on your wonders. It is never bad to meditate on God's wonders and on his word. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. You know, he, notice he doesn't say strengthen me according to you changing the condition of my life, you changing my circumstances. The Lord, we know, does not always do that, and he doesn't always do that on this timetable. But we can be strengthened according to your word. Remove that false way from me. And it's false because it leads to destruction. It's not truth. It's not God's word. It's false because it's probably disguised as something good. And graciously grant me your law. I mean, I just don't think of law and commandments of things I love and I delight in. But I think if I was thinking right, I would love God's law and I would love his commandments. And then here's the commitment. I've chosen the faithful way. I've placed your ordinances before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Do not put me to shame. I shall run the way of your commandments for you will enlarge my heart. That, that God that we ask for wisdom of, he gives us the things that we need. Our heart is, is hurt. Our soul cleaves to the dust. The Lord will enlarge our heart, not by changing those conditions, of course, but by changing us in his word. What else does the Bible say about counsel? Proverbs 15.22 says, Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. It is good for people, it is good for the people of God to have many counselors. Of course, it is good for the people of God to have many godly counselors. And so we want to avoid situations where we're counting on one counselor to give us all of our counsel. And so there's, uh, if you come to, to one of your pastors and we are going to counsel with you for a period of time. Where is the, the power for change going to happen? Is it going to be in the words of the person? 
or is it going to be in the Word of God? You don't have to rely on one person, even a godly person who loves and cares for you. We are all imperfect. We all fail. We all lack wisdom. We're asking for wisdom the same as you. It is good to have multiple counselors. And I just think of of counseling relationships that we could enter into, uh, maybe even outside the church, where there's one counselor for a long period of time, and that's almost that sole counselor. We have a, have a warning against that in Scripture. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, Where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there is victory. We know that God is omniscient, that men are. There is no man that has everything that we need. God has, has, has given wisdom uh, to many and given us discernment in his word to discern good and godly counsel. And we need to, to uh, search that out and to trust in that. So your trust is not in men, even godly men and women. Our trust is in God and his word. And you know what? God's people are called and equipped for this task. You just think about all the one another's in scriptures in scripture, all the one another's that are included in our church covenant. Here's an, a, a not quite exhaustive list. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor. Live in harmony. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another. Instruct one another. Have equal concern for. Serve. Carry burdens for. Bear with. Be kind to one another. Be patient. Forgive Submit to one another. Consider others better than yourself. Teach others. Admonish one another. Encourage one another. And spur on toward love and good deeds. God's people have been gifted and have been equipped and have been called to serve one another, to counsel one another, to admonish one another, and to rebuke and correct and teach and train one another in the Lord. So the, the Bible gives us ample encouragement to come to his word. It teaches and trains us how to come to his word to love one another and helps us help each other and to be discerning of the counsel that we, we receive. And in that discernment, we come to the third part of our sermon because we are given several warnings about the counsel that might be offered to us in this world. Our problem comes... When we speak and think in the world's categories and with the world's vocabulary instead of the Holy Scripture's categories and vocabulary. So we know it's very possible to gain wisdom from observations made by non-believers. We know that. But God's word in this sermon is a warning against diminishing the word of God or compromising the word of God to accommodate counseling theories and methodologies that are anti-God. We can go to Scripture and study the doctrine and implications of common grace, and by that, we can gain the wisdom to use the world's observations. But we must remember that what? Friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God. We must be careful and not compromise the truth. So often in discipleship or counseling, one of our first tasks is to set the framework and vocabulary which we'll use. And so I'll give you a couple examples. And here's the first one. This first one is one I use. It's not a good thing. It's this one, this is something I have probably used this week. You, if you've been around me, you've probably heard words like this come out of my mouth. I am struggling with, and then fill in the blank, I'm struggling with being self, selfless for my wife. Or I'm struggling with intentionally sharing the gospel. So we want to rephrase this using biblical words and biblical categories. What will it sound like? I am sinning against my wife by selfishly using my time for myself and neglecting her needs. Or I'm allowing fear to rule me because I don't want to offend my neighbor with the gospel instead of obeying God's great commission. So don't you see, when we start to think in God's context and in God's vocabulary, the words of the Bible become clearer to us and, and we can see that they are applicable. 
We can find it in a more formal uh, situation. Here's another example. Let's say you were diagnosed by somebody qualified to give diagnoses with persistent depressive disorder. And so that person comes to you and you start scrolling through your Bible and you just don't find those words because the Bible isn't speaking in those categories and with that vocabulary. But what does the Bible speak about when you really get to know each other and when you're really talking to each other and you're sharing your heart and other words start coming out and those are words that we can speak to with Scripture because the Bible talks a lot about hope and it talks a lot about despair and it talks about guilt and feelings and emotions It talks about wrong thinking and disordered thinking. And it talks about right thinking and taking thoughts captive. And God's word talks a lot about repentance. And those are things that Christians can speak to each other. We can learn God's word. We can know God's word. And we can talk about these things with the words from Scripture in the categories from Scripture. And we have to be careful when we're talking Uh, to people who do not belong to Christ. What does the Bible teach us about the world? Jesus told his disciples there's a gulf, an opposition to him in the world. Friendship with the world is hostility with God. Here's what 1 John chapter 2 says, uh, starting in verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away, and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. We are to be careful. We are, we are to be warned about what the world is seeking to offer God's people. We're to avoid the counsel of fools and scoffers. So a fool is someone who refuses to listen to wisdom or learn from discipline. Failing to fear God or respect the rules of reality, they repeat their folly much like a dog returns to its vomit. Here's how God describes fools. Proverbs 18, verse 2. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Proverbs 10, 23. Doing wickedness is like sports to a fool, and so is wisdom to a man of understanding. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge in Proverbs 1.7. And from this verse, we can also infer that lacking fear of God is the beginning of foolishness. In fact, the Bible says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The height of foolishness is to, to deny God. People of God don't go to spiritual counsel For someone who denies God, you are going to a fool. Fools deny God's truth. We we are not to take spiritual counsel from them. Don't go to scoffers for counsel. People who, who don't believe what God teaches in his word and say that. Psalm 1 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Scoffers are mockers, they make mouths at. They're ambassadors for somebody speaking against you. Equally, here's a warning about going to unbelievers for spiritual counsel. Think about how the Bible describes unbelievers, and I'm going to just survey these quickly. Psalm 78, verse 2. They are people who sin in not believing his wonderful works. John 5, 38. The word does not abide in them. They do not trust God, Psalm 78, 22. They have blinded minds. They are unseen, John 9, 39. They are disobedient to the word, 1 Peter chapter 3. They reject Christ, John 12, 48. And they are not to be, or we are not to be bound with unbelievers, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. We are not to be bound. We are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so we think about what can happen in the church. And we read about in Scripture that false teachers are going to come. And so how does false teaching enter the church? 
And when I think about that, I'm, I'm, I, and I'm standing here and I'm looking right to the, to the front door and I'm thinking about the door opening and somebody walking in. But this building isn't the church, is it? We're, we are the church. So if false teaching is entering the church, false teaching is entering through us. So what do we listen to? What do we read? Where do we spend our time? What occupies our thoughts? Are you listening to foolish, scoffing counselors? And the people of God should not. We have the counsel that is authoritative. We have the counsel that is sufficient. We have the wisdom giving us given to us in Scripture to understand our feelings and emotions. We have the wisdom given to us in Scripture to understand what the world has to offer and the discernment to know what is God's and the fruit that it produces and what is the world's and the thorns that it produces. So I want to wrap up, and I'd like everybody to turn to the very first psalm, Psalm 1. We read a portion of that. And if you're looking to disciple or to counsel somebody, this is, a, this is just a good go-to uh, section of Scripture that I turn to often. And the Lord blesses me uh, through it almost weekly. Here's what Psalm 1-1 says. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the sea of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. So much of the time, we, we, the people of God, who aren't doing what God tells us to do, need to stop doing that, but then to replace that with something else. Don't walk in the counsel of wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. But instead, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law, he meditates day and night. What's the result? He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Church, we have everything we need to change in Christ. Christ has provided that in his word. He has provided that in his creation. We, the people of God, are united with Christ. We are not just listening are reading a list of laws and commandments as good as they are. We have been given the power to change in Christ. Christ has put his spirit in us if we belong to him. What does 2 Corinthians 5, 17 say? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. When we are in Christ, we have been reborn. We are new in Christ, and we're not alone. He has placed us in Christ. Christ is in us. He has placed us in the body of Christ. We are in his church. And so for the church, for everybody here, you have all the riches in Christ that you need unless you don't have them. And you don't have them if you are not in Christ. I mean, there is a message of, of hopelessness to the world. Here's an example for Christians. Have any of you been anxious about anything ever? Have you ever worried? Has something kept you up at night? Have you worried about circumstances and stopped trusting in the Lord? Here's what 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 say. It says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that, or that he may exalt you at the proper time, Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. If you belong to Christ, Christ is caring for you. You can humble yourself. You don't have to worry about that. You can humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you at the proper time. You can cast your anxiety upon him because the God who is all-powerful, whose loving kindness is everlasting, who works all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. He loves you. He is caring for you. If you don't have that God, you should be anxious. And this is the call to you. 
God's love is not withheld from you. If you can hear and understand his gospel, you can believe that gospel and be saved. What is that gospel? We are sinners. We, know, we can look inside ourselves and we know we are sinners. We know we suffer. God sent his son to live a perfect life. He then died, not for his sins, because he was sinless. He died for, he died for my sins. And if you trust in him, he dies for your sins. And we just trust that he did that. He proved it when he rose again from the grave. We trust in Jesus' death, his atonement for our sins, his resurrection. We can be in Christ. God, God does not look at our sin anymore. He looks at Christ. Christ has satisfied the wrath that our sins are due. And so this is a call. You can have the wisdom that God provides in his word. You can have the Holy Spirit in you. But ultimately, you have standing before God, as Romans 5 puts it. You are in Christ before God. You are adopted into his family. And you get all these benefits. And these benefits are good and they're worth having. But you get to be a member of God's family. And so this is a call for you. For believers, this is a call to continue to trust God's word. To be, to be careful about the things of the world and to exercise discernment, to have multiple counselors, but to trust God's word. And if you want to learn to worship God, which is ultimately what we are always doing, go to God's word and learn that. And go especially to Psalm 119. And I would love to hear, uh, hear about your walk with the Lord in that. So we're going to close right now. We're going to ask the Lord uh, to... to Bless us as we seek to study his word, as we seek to love his word. If, if you are trusting the Lord for the first time, I just pray that you would let uh, one of our church members or one of our pastors know about that after the service. We would love to walk uh, with you through that. If you're a church member who's suffering, I commend you to go to the word of God. Go to other believers. Come to your pastors. This church has been gifted by God and equipped by God to care for one another. And it is a good thing when, when we who are in pain or we who are suffering or we who are struggling go to other believers and let them exercise those gifts. We are, God is glorified. So let's pray.